Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Glad we've made it through yet another crazy work week. Today we actually have a good martini. It's a qualified, tentative, temporary probably good martini, but at least we've got one today, which is more than I can say for yesterday. And then we've got uh, certainly a bad, and then that's one that's probably both bad and crazy. So, uh, Jim, yesterday we were lamenting, and for good reason, the fact that Republicans got rolled, Joe Manchin caved, and uh, barring a miracle, uh, there is going to be a pretty significantly scaled-down version of, of Build Back Better that's going to pass half a trillion dollars in climate policy stuff and raising uh, taxes on corporations and and the wealthiest Americans and so forth, uh, expansion of Obamacare, stuff you and I would never vote for. Um, And so, Jim, you ask for miracles. We're probably not going to get one, but if it does come... Might come from Kirsten Cinema. Now, as you said yesterday, it's highly unlikely that she's going to stand alone on this because it really would mean the end of her political career. She'd kind of be a, a, a politically speaking, a dead senator walking for the next two years. But nonetheless, she hasn't said she's for it. And Politico is writing about this. Almost every Senate Democrat is locking arms to push their $700 billion plus climate tax and health care bill, pass the chamber's strict rules for avoiding a filibuster. Kirsten Cinema is still a question mark. The Arizona Democrat has not commented on the legislation and isn't expected to do so until she reviews the text and the rulings from the Senate parliamentarian, according to her spokesperson. At the moment, with the package set to reach the floor as, the, as soon as the middle of next week, her timeline for reaching a decision is uncertain. Meanwhile, it turns out, Jim, that Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, they never talk to her. <laughs> She's frustrated at not being looped in while another person who talked to her said she was totally shocked and Republicans think she's their only chance at stopping the deal. John Cornyn, quote, she was not consulted. And remember, Cornyn worked with her a lot on that uh, gun bill. He says, I know I can trust her when she tells me something. I'm beginning to think I can't trust other people around here when they tell me something because they so routinely lie about it. So, Jim, again, in the end, you know, we heaped a lot of praise on Joe Manchin just a couple of weeks ago, and he ended up doing what he did. In the end, she's probably going to go with the Democrats. Maybe she'll force some changes that we like. Who knows? But the fact that she's mad about not being consulted, and I seem to remember her not being all keen on raising taxes a few months ago, hopefully that uh, is a stumbling block, albeit probably temporary. Yeah, I think the best part of this as a good martini or as a sign that things may not be uh, quite so dire as they seemed yesterday, is that Chuck Schumer is still something of a schmuck who doesn't realize he should be talking to everybody, all 50 Democratic senators, if he wants everybody to be on board for this. It's not like Kirsten Cinema is obscure. It's not like she's quiet. It's not like this is, you know, uh, she's been on board throughout this whole process, and now all of a sudden she might not be on board. She's been, you know, next to Manchin, the most hated Democrat amongst progressives and the other significant stumbling block, uh, you know, roadblock, speed bump, whatever, however you want to characterize it. Um, And I think she's got good reason to be kind of uh, complicated. You know, she's up on the Senate. It's not like she's hard to reach. And even if they didn't want to bring her into the negotiations, even if they wanted to, you know, make this negotiations just between Manchin and Schumer 
to li- at minimum, you want to give her a heads up and say, hey, we're, we look like we might have a deal here. We're going to announce it. We hope it's the sort of thing you would be able to sign on to or something like that. Um, this really doesn't feel like good caucus management on the part of Chuck Schumer. And that's probably going to complicate things. Is it going to complicate things in order to sink the whole deal? I would not count on that. Does it make cinema maybe a little more persnickety and a little more likely to hold out and to say, oh, no, no, I'm not going to go on either. You can't have that tax increase uh, at the level that it is. You got to bring it down or you got to eliminate it completely. I think it does complicate getting her on board. Maybe we end up with a slightly less worse version of this legislation. But really, this is a very thin read to uh, for Republicans and conservatives to uh uh, to be counting on in this uh, last couple of months before the midterm election. Yeah, no, it's bad. It's bad. Uh, Republicans uh, in the House, when this comes back around, uh, if it comes back around, are whipping it pretty hard, trying to force some moderate Dems to vote for tax increases right before the elections and some swing in competitive districts. Maybe on the margins that helps at the ballot box, but it's not going to change the fact most likely that this bill in some similar form is going to get through, and that stinks. All right. Meanwhile, there's no shortage of bad legislation coming from the uh, Democratic majority in the Senate. Uh, There's another one that NetChoice has been warning us about. Our country is being rocked by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, and chaos on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that matter and to ease the economic pain we're all feeling. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like S2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, Jim, we didn't specifically mention the uh, negative GDP number that came out yesterday. We foreshadowed it all week, though, because the Biden administration spent day after day saying it's not officially uh, a recession. That has to come from a specific government agency and uh, look at this factor and look at this factor. And meanwhile, reporters and conservatives have dug up quotes from Brian Deese, Bill Clinton from back 20 years ago and and so forth, all saying that, you know, yeah, a recession is essentially uh, uh, noted by two consecutive quarters of of negative growth in the GDP. But uh, meanwhile, one of the reasons that it was negative in the second quarter, Jim, is because inflation is so bad. Uh, if inflation had been uh, quite low, uh, the, the quarter might not have been that bad, which is probably one of the reasons why the Democrats are trying to pretend it's not a recession. But the fact is inflation is real, and it's not getting any better. Associated Press today, inflation surged in June, and workers' average wages accelerated in the spring, signs that Americans won't feel any relief, likely, from rising prices anytime soon, and that the Federal Reserve will feel compelled to further raise borrowing costs. An inflation gauge closely tracked by the Fed jumped 6.8% in June from a year ago. The government said Friday, the biggest such jump in four decades. 
Much of the increase was driven by energy and food. On a month-to-month basis, prices surged 1% in June, the biggest such rise since 2005. Even excluding food and energy, prices climbed 0.6% from May to June. Employee wages, meanwhile, jumping 1.6%, which in some ways is good, but in other ways it's not because then employers pass that along to consumers as well. So, Jim, the bottom line is nothing's going to change on these high prices in the immediate foreseeable future and certainly through the end of the year. Bad for the Democrats at the ballot box, bad for every single one of us until this abates. Yeah, I mean, just about every day or every weekday, either the Department of Commerce Bureau of Economic Analysis or the Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics are putting out some new update on official government economic statistics. And there are bigger and more consequential ones and more covered ones than others. Uh, Everybody kind of knows first Friday of the month, you usually get the unemployment numbers for the previous month. Back when unemployment was very high, there was a lot of excitement and I was excited, but drama, suspense, uh, the numbers were seen as very consequential. Unemployment's been very low. And so the Biden administration might be, ah, you know, why aren't we getting more good news out of those uh, Friday releases? But, you know, people don't think a lot about what's going right. They often are, have their minds focused on what's going wrong. Um, this Usually when we're discussing inflation, we're talking about the consumer price index numbers. Those come out usually in the early part of the month. But um, the n- numbers for July, and obviously we're not out of this month yet, uh, will come out on August 10th, right? Gross domestic product comes out every three months. The next numbers for the GDP, uh, for, you know, they, they, they revise the estimates about a month later each time. Um, but the GDP numbers for the quarter that we're currently in will come out on October 27th, right before Election Day. So sometimes it's a really big deal. You don't hear as nearly as much about um, the personal consumption expenditures price index. But at a time when inflation is front and center in our minds, people are going to pay a little more close attention. And because this one comes out later, um, you know, it's got a little more uh, a little more digestion, shall we say, of these numbers. You know, it takes time to gather them, put them in order, you know, weed out anything that seems unusual, erroneous, or, or it would really be skewing the numbers. What it's basically telling us is, yes, June is as bad as it expected. And I don't think anyone should expect the July numbers to represent any significant dramatic improvement. There was one economic projection that had it expecting the uh, July inflation number is going to be 9.2%, a little bit worse than last month's 9.1%. And Kiplinger's, the personal finance magazine, said you really shouldn't expect anything too different from 9% for the rest of the year. A really ominous projection out there. So we don't know what it's going to be. It's probably not going to be all that good. And it's an indicator that, you know, this administration keeps telling us, ah, you know, they don't worry about it. They say, we, we're hitting the peak, green shoot. I remember, you know, I was thinking back to the early Obama days, green shoots, recovery summer, and all this, you know, constant spin efforts. Look, chances are inflation is going to remain high. And as long as inflation is remaining very high, people will feel like the economy is plotting at best and struggling at worst. Yeah. So even though wages are up, uh, real wages are down. I think it was 4.4 percent we just saw in a report. Right. Uh, So uh, you can point to employment reports. You can uh, you can point to whatever you want. And it's obviously we want those things to be better rather than worse. But uh, if, if people are bringing home essentially less money once they pay for things that cost a lot more than they used to, uh, they're not going to be excited about <laughs> whatever other uh, economic report you're throwing out there. Their life is harder. And Jim, for some reason, they want tons of credit. I know we've talked about this before, but you know, Gas Buddy or whatever it was uh, put out today, hey, look at all these uh, stations across the, the country that are down to three ninety nine or lower. And Ron Klain's like, retweet, retweet, retweet. And so I saw one person out there saying, 
yeah, when it gets down to about 2.15, which is where it was when you took office, then I'll start to celebrate. Until then, it's way up. It was way up long before any Putin invasion or anything else. And so cheering for $4, yeah, it's better than $5, but it's mainly because people gave up on going anywhere. And also note that a whole lot of those uh, gas stations are in the southeastern states, which generally, but not uniformly, have lower rates of, uh, of gas taxes. Uh, it's not the only factor, and often they're close to Savannah and, and various refineries and things like that. But by and large, you know, if you're if you're in the Northeast or you're on the West Coast, tough luck, folks. You're out of luck. Yeah, no family road trip this summer. So it's, it's just a fact for a lot of people right now. CPAC Chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to our final martini now, bad slash crazy. Uh, we still, I think, are fairly optimistic that Republicans will uh, take back the House, but I would, I would kind of like a Republican agenda other than just saying, hey, aren't the Democrats terrible? Uh, and hopefully candidate by candidate that's happening, but I'm not seeing much of a uh, unified message on that. And when it comes to the Senate... Uh, I've been kind of pessimistic on that for a while now, especially when you look at some of the seats that Republicans have to defend. The race we're going to focus on, and we've focused on it a lot, is Pennsylvania. Uh, in the latest Fox News poll released on Thursday, Lieutenant Governor and Democratic nominee John Fetterman is at 47%, whereas Dr. Oz, the Republican nominee, is at 36%. That is not good. That is definitely not good. And so, especially when you factor in the fact that Fetterman uh, had a stroke over two months ago, has not appeared in public, to my knowledge, uh, and so has basically been vacant on the campaign trail. The only thing I ever see from his social media accounts is mocking the fact that Dr. Oz is actually a resident of New Jersey, which is true. So, uh, Jim, Oz's negatives, I think, are still pretty, pretty high um, by a 16-point margin. Fewer Republicans are uh, loyal to him, 73%. Then Democrats to Fetterman, 89%. Only 67% of Republicans view Oz uh, favorably. And so that, those are terrible numbers for the nominee of your own party. John Fetterman is a radical. He does not fit the state. Uh, there are stories out, out there about him and his ideas to ban fracking a couple of years ago. But none of that's going to matter uh, when you've got a nominee on the Republican side who's just so deeply untrusted and unpopular. You know, Greg, it is a fact of life that you're going to lose your parties. Your preferred party is going to lose some races you think they should have won. You know, nobody sweeps all the seats in a given year. Usually, even in a good year, there'll be one or two seats that get away from you. You're at it. My attitude is, if I'm going to lose, I want to lose with a candidate who I think is the best candidate and let the chips fall where they may. Where they may. Uh, Cory Gardner, former Republican senator of Colorado, I think he's a, you know, a better senator, a better man, better by every conceivable stretch than the Democrats' former governor, John Hickenlooper, who took his mom to a porno movie. Um, I just feel like that should be attached to his name every time he does that because he's just such a weirdo. But anyway, there, there. Uh, look, you know, people of Colorado chose Hickenlooper over Gardner. It was 2020 presidential year. Uh, Biden was winning the state by a wide margin. It was always going to be an uphill climb for Cory Gardner. But you know what? We had the best candidate possible. I don't think there's any Republican who could have won in those circumstances. 
That's just the way the ball bounces. What I really can't stand are the self-inflicted wounds, where if you probably had nominated a better candidate, you could have knocked them off. Sharon Angle in 2010 against Harry Reid, that inspired our recurring slogan, way to go, Nevada, way to go. Um, Christine O'Donnell instead of Mike Castle in uh, Delaware. Uh, you know, Castle was would have voted with uh, with conservatives maybe 51% of the time. Maybe I'm not, I'm not gonna exaggerate. I'm not gonna tell you he would have been great. But he would have gotten the seat and he would have voted for a Republican majority. He would have, you know, and that was a winnable seat that Republicans gave away by nominating Christine, I'm not a witch, O'Donnell. Here we have a circumstance in which, look, it's Pennsylvania. It's a purple state. Pat Toomey is the guy who's retiring. You know, Trump won the state once and he lost the state once. We have a shot at a state like Pennsylvania if you nominate the right guy. I think McCormick was the better choice. Your mileage may vary, but I think you can argue. Like Mehmet Oz was an experiment. And as we were joking before we started taping, Greg, look, Oprah's couch is not where conservatives look to for leadership. Uh, Mehmet Oz, you know, we had brought a ton of baggage to this. He was only kind of the ultimate celebrity, maybe even dilettante candidate. And but, you know, Donald Trump picked him. Now, I think you have a whole bunch of Trump Republicans in Pennsylvania were like, whoa, whoa, Donald, this guy is not one of us. This guy does not stand for our values. You, you know, how, what are you thinking there? But Donald went and made the endorsement. He won an extremely closely contested primary. And the ad was like, all right, all right, Dr. Oz, show, show us what you can do. And the answer is he can't do much at all. He's terrible because he's losing by now, according to Fox News, 11 points to a guy who might as well have been in a coma for six weeks. Yes, I'm glad Fetterman is recovering. And he did do like one uh, visit to one of his campaign offices. The tapes seem very edited. Look, I hope he makes a full recovery. He seems to be talking okay in these short videos that they're linking. But let's face it, if, if John Fetterman's health was hunky-dory and he was doing fine, he'd be out everywhere these days. He's not. I think it's an indicator of the state of his health. This is the sort of circumstance where any Republican candidate should be out hustling the Democrat. He should be out there doing every county fair, every small gathering, every meet and greet. You want to maximize your level of enthusiasm. Not only is he not doing that, I have, my understanding is that Mehmet Oz isn't even running that many TV ads. Now, maybe he thinks he's got some grand strategy for the fall where he's going to flood the airwaves or something like that. But look at it. It's not working. He's down 11. He's down 10. And this guy, the opposition isn't even campaigning very much. It was a terrible choice by Pennsylvania Republicans. And I'd like to see some way where Oz can turn this around and, and get the state and win it for Republicans. But it's looking really bad. It looks like an extraordinarily avoidable mistake. And if it turns out to be a 50-50 Senate again or Democrats uh you know win a majority or something like, you know we'll be kicking republicans will be kicking themselves they'll be asking why did we nominate mehmet oz it's not just that he didn't win it's that so far we have very little sign that oz can even make this competitive democrats aren't even gonna have to spend much money in pennsylvania and that's what's really most insufferable about all this uncompetitive and not a conservative so uh between those two things it's uh it's a head scratcher not a Pennsylvania resident also. So, uh, Jim, this is supposed to be a year of high GOP enthusiasm. In this poll, of those who support Dr. Oz, 35% say they support him enthusiastically, while 45% have reservations. For Fetterman, 68% back him enthusiastically, and only 18 hesitate. So, basically, more than 50% of the people going to vote for Dr. Oz of this 36%, so only a third are you going to vote for him, and then over 50% of those are like, eh, I guess so. Not, <laughs> I mean, like, not a good sign. In a year like this, if you're a Republican, you can't generate any enthusiasm, you've got real problems there. Do you think going to all the fairs would really help him? I mean, he's got virtual, 
universal name ID and that people just don't like him. So I'm not sure how much it'll help. I mean, you should be working hard to win, certainly. So maybe he could change some minds. But I feel like with him, so much of this is already baked into the cake. That is a strong argument there, Greg. But I'm just gonna the, the example I always come back to is Mark Sanford when he was making his comeback bid in the House of Representatives. It was a special election. It was South Carolina's first district near where my parents live, uh, down near Hilton Head Island. And the Democrats were running the sister of Stephen Colbert. Right. And, you know, this was a Republican leaning district, but, uh, you know, Sanford had his share of baggage because of his infamous, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail and things like that. And one of the ways Stanford, Stanford ended up winning by like 10 points. It wasn't even close at the end. And one of the ways he did it is that he basically out hustled the opposition. Uh, you know, Colbert's sister was doing one event a day, sticking to tightly scripted remarks, not taking questions, et cetera. And I think one of the ways Sanford's attitude about like ways to diffusing the Appalachian Trail questions was to answer any and all questions from anybody on anything. And honestly, in that district, a lot of people were just too embarrassed to bring up that issue. They, did, they, they wanted to leave it in the past and all that stuff. But Sanford was doing like 10 events a day. He would show up and he'd shake hands and they'd, you know, do a cup of coffee clatches and, and you know, hang out outside uh, supermarkets. And he just, he just seemed to be everywhere. And when one candidate is doing one event a day and not taking questions, and the other candidate is doing 10 events a day, like for week after week, it starts to add up. So again, with this, I was thinking about this ironically, in the context of Kyler Murray's contract, where they <laughs> wanted him to do four hours of film study a week uh, for the Arizona Cardinals. Okay. You have to forgive me, listeners. I listen to sports radios in the morning, and these are the ideas that pop in my head. But I think the one thing you can control is how much you practice. The one thing you can control is your work ethic and what you get. You the whole bunch of stuff in, in sports you can't control and a whole bunch of stuff in politics you can't control. But the one thing Mehmet Oz could control is his schedule and how much he's interacting with people, with, with uh, the people of Pennsylvania. If you're going to lose, at least do that. Lose, lose after make, giving 110%. And I just don't see it. And I think it's a, a very poor strategy on his campaign's part. Practice? We're not talking about the <laughs> game, Jim. We're talking about practice? Yeah. Oh... County fairs? What are we talking about? It's not the election day. Uh, I mean, you know, Fetterman can't go to all these, so you got the field floor to yourself. Is Alan Iverson a Republican? I think he'd do better than Dr. Oz. It's <laughs> probably not. No, but, but Herschel Walker is. Herschel That's Walker is. Yeah, he needs to do better, too. At least he's within, you know, striking distance, though. But, uh, Jim, uh, <laughs> we're getting close to the weekend, as our listeners can probably tell. See you Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well, please. Thank you also very, very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They really are a big help to us, so please keep those coming. Uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and please join us on Monday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Hey guys, we know it's hard to keep up with all the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk and laugh about it all. More people need to be questioning why China is buying a bunch of U.S. land, fully vaxxed Biden has the Rona, and the White House is still pushing off the fact that we're in a recession. Hey, it's the Chicks from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.